Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. I'm going to have a look at that second passage from James. And I want you to use your imagination for a while. Imagine it's about 30 or 40 years after Jesus has died. And you are a woman who has been stolen from her homeland by the Roman occupying forces and you've been forced into slavery. You have no rights effectively as a person. This was the situation of many women and men who were slaves in the Roman Empire and they had an enormous amount of slaves in the Roman Empire. And imagine you as this female dispossessed person working in the household of a Roman centurion who was wealthy and privileged and part of the ruling elite. You've got these two extremes of a person who is powerless and a person who is powerful. And imagine both of you become Christians. What would it be like gathering together as church? What would be the tensions within that relationship? And that's exactly what happened in the early church. In a culture where they had a sense that some people were worth virtually nothing but were mere functionaries and other people were so significant and important, they came to Christ and they gathered once a week in a church, not a church building, but a gathering of Christians. And there were tensions. They're on a flat land before God, but how are they going to treat each other? Is the wealthy centurion of privilege going to treat the slave woman with dignity and respect? That's the ancient problem. And I wonder if we have a modern problem as well, where we have certain people who are treated with great respect and others who are treated with no respect. And we as a community perhaps need to inquire of our members, how are we treated? How are we loved? How are we cared for? There's a, a black law professor called uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, and uh, she did some great writing uh, about disadvantage. And she said disadvantage often pools together. And she, as a, a black woman, knows that it pools around race, ethnicity, colour, poverty, and ability or disability. And she said these people are profoundly discriminated against. And she talks about, in her writing, she's a, a, a law professor who writes a lot of theory about how we operate as people. That it's very easy in the general culture not to treat people as true people, as significant. And the question for us, of course, is do we imbibe that in the church? Do we really treat people like they are full people? worthy of respect 
regardless of the external circumstances of their life or how they look. In the American situation, there's a long history of fighting on these issues. There's a, a great painting that uh, Caroline's going to put up for us. Um, it's a very simple painting, I know. Uh, Glenn Mygon is a, an artist who I love. And he just declared, uh, as an African-American man, I am a man, which seems like a, a, an obvious declaration. But of course, he hasn't been treated with the full dignity that white men have been treated with. So he wanted to have this statement, I, I am just as significant as the rest of you. And he borrowed this from a 1968 image of the black sanitation workers in America who fought for equal pay with their white counterparts. Have a look at the uh, image and start. All these people there saying, I am a man. <coughs> Here they were declaring that I'm worth just as much as other people in the community, even though you want to disrespect me. I'm worth just as much as the white man. And yet at the time, the equivalent minimum wage was $16 if you're white, that these guys were being paid about $5 an hour. What was happening here was what James is really talking about. Discrimination against people because of external aspects of their life. What they look like, their poverty, their ethnicity. Who are we in the eyes of God? That's, I think, the question we, we want. I think this passage is all about identity. Are we all made in the image of God, rich and poor alike, male and female alike, all ethnicity alike? Who are we in the eyes of God? And then who are we in the eyes of each other? And the gap between how God sees us and how we see each other, that gap is the gaping hole of the lack of love that James addresses in this passage. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers, we're all believers in that glorious Lord Jesus, we must not show favoritism. And the face of favouritism is the face of racism and ageism and sexism. It's the face of saying, I look at your external and I judge you. The early church obviously had a problem with this. And perhaps so do we, broadly in the church. And we have to ask ourselves the question, do we have that issue here? I'm not sure what the answer is. Favoritism in the original language meant to look at the surface and make a decision by looking at the surface. Are you poor? 
you don't need much. You're rich, you mean everything. It's the superficial judgments. And it's what God never does. Thankfully, God never judges us from our external. He doesn't say, you're not tall enough for me, you're not bright enough for me, you're not the right colour, you don't have the right possessions. He looks towards our heart, always. And the Bible constantly says the same message, don't judge from externals, from the superficial. Leviticus, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favouritism to the great. For in Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. And the logic of the Bible is simple because we are all equal before God. And when we come to Christ, when we come to that cross, when we believe in the hope of the resurrection, as Paul says, there, there is no difference between us there. There is no Jew nor Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all and Christ is all. James is speaking into that and saying, if we're all equal before God, are we treating each other equal face-to-face in the church? Men and women together. It's, it's a radical statement and it's a radical view of culture, but we're used to it, so we don't think it's so radical. But remember that idea when I said, you know, imagine you are a, a slave woman in the first century. Imagine being told you can meet with this guy who's got all this wealth and privilege and you're equal. At odd times in the Australian church, we've had incredible uh, segregation within the church. And you're going to some of the uh, early colonial churches and you'll see the, the pews that people have bought and the wealth and privilege of certain people means they can sit here and the others where you can sit right down the back. The Bible declares that we're all one if we're rich or if we are poor. It declares that we are a community of equality, but gee, it's very easy to hear the voice of our culture over the voice of God. And it's very easy to start discriminating on the external and to treat certain people really well and other people very poorly. So, no favoritism. James takes favoritism so very seriously. Over the last few weeks, as I've been reading this passage at breakfast, I suppose I've been a bit embarrassed. I thought, I I haven't taken favoritism that seriously. I haven't seen this as such a critical issue. Because we treat people differently all the time. We treat some people with more respect than others. When I um, 
was a chaplain in hospitals, in a palliative care chaplain. It was always interesting to me that everyone knew the names of the doctors and the nurses and the physiotherapists, but they rarely ever knew the name of the cleaner. And the cleaner came into the room each day as well. But somehow everyone showed this incredible favouritism towards those with privilege and those who were doing a functional job. Were they nothing? And James says, this is really serious if we're God's people. And he gives an example of favouritism. He says, this is two people walk into the church. It sounds like a joke, doesn't it? I just need an Irishman in the middle of it all. Two people walk into a church. One is uh, flash and got flash jewellery on. And the people go, here's a seat for you. And the poor guy comes in there, oh, you can sit there. And effectively sit at my feet. Sounds similar to a dog, doesn't it? He says, you can't be like that. There's nothing wrong with the good treatment. The good treatment would be wonderful if the poor man came in and the person said at the door, here's a seat for you. And the wealthy person came and said, here's a seat for you. It's complete equality. No, it's the dissing of the poor. The poor are treated as less than important. The poor don't have a voice. That's true, isn't it, in the general culture so clearly, but it can't be true here. It can't be true within the church or we're doing something really, really wrong. James says, you know, if you do that, if you discriminate, you become judges with evil thoughts. It's serious, isn't it? I know many of us will have known disrespect in our lives because of our position in life, because of our poverty, because of our ethnicity, our colour, our gender, our ableism. Many of us will know what it's like to be the end of the Q people. Many people will know racism and sexism and ageism and classism. But the church should not be like this. And the question is, uh, are we like that here? Some of you know that I teach a course at uh, Moore Theological College in pastoral care. It's the only pastoral care course they do for their four years at college. And for the six months that I have them, I raise issues like this. It's no use saying to them, how are people treated at your church? Because they're part of the privileged few. And they'll say, oh, we're all treated really well. So the only way you're going to find out how people are loved at your church, how people are cared for at your church, is to listen to people. A listening community is a loving community. And I tell the students, talk to everyone in the church and ask them things like, how well are you loved here? How well are you cared for? How well are you listened to? A loving community is a listening community who hears all voices equally. 
a listening community is not just the corporate, but it's the individual. That are we a community who listens to each other and hears our stories and gives respect to the person who is speaking? And who are the people who don't feel respected and don't feel listened to? I'm not saying this to give us a hard time because we may talk to each other and say, yeah, no one feels put down. No one feels disrespected. But we can't just say, yeah, we're all going great. We do need to be a listening community, don't we? To hear the voice of the other. To hear the voice of the person who says, I'm older and I'm not being respected. I'm a different ethnicity, I'm not being respected. English is not my first language, I'm not being respected. We need to hear that voice. I am poor and dispossessed and not being respected. And James says, this is serious. When James spoke, he spoke into a culture which really is no different to our own, even though it's 2,000 years ago. People were in the thrall of wealth. Somehow they bowed down to the wealthy. The guy comes in with the flash ring on and they says, here's a seat for you. It's, it's odd, isn't it, that we are in the thrall of wealth, that we think there's some mystique around the rich. And we read magazines about their lives and look at their houses and make mock of them, but also have some sense of awe about them. We listen to the rich and their opinions, but we don't listen to the poor and their opinions. And if that's our general culture, we have to be alert. Are we letting that into the church? When do we step away from treating people all equal before God? James goes on, he says, brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Read through the Gospel of Luke especially. And we recognise the poor are elevated in the Bible, not put down. but we often don't elevate the poor within our church communities. It's the straight truth that Jesus came as a poor man, not as a powerful, wealthy one. There is a discomfort with wealth in the Gospels. There is a discomfort with wealth with Paul when he says greed is idolatry. For it's not that money is wrong and not that riches are wrong, but gee, it's very easy when you have riches to be have a sense of privilege and to think that you're worth more than other people. It's very easy when you're rich to become greedy. It's very easy when you're rich to have a sense of privilege and that begets selfishness. And we need to be alert to that. Jesus came as a humble man, a worker. He came as a person who was part of a people group who had been overrun by the Romans. He came as a powerless person. 
He is our Lord. He is our aspiration, not Jeff Bezos. And I do wonder, and this is what I've been thinking about the last few weeks, how do we move away from the thrall of wealth? How do we start saying, no, 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 I've got to treat people equally, and who do I not treat equally? Who, who do I not listen to? Who am I elevating and who am I putting down? And it's not good enough, I think, for us to say, you know, no, no, I treat everyone equally. And that's great if we do, but I think we need to be very alert that we don't imbibe the spirit of our age. For wealth brings with it envy and covetousness and bitterness and discord and disregard of the other. And the question for us is how can we be different? How can we be content with what God has given us? Remember when Paul says, contentment with godliness is great gain. Are we content that we have the riches of Christ? James continues and says, the rich have dishonored the poor. They're the ones who are exploiting you. Uh, Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? He's talking about in the church and saying, the the rich are, they're abusive here. So why are you treating the wealthy with such awe? Why don't you say to the poor man who comes in, you're here, you're one of us. In our culture, the outside matters more than the inside. We have to be people of the inside. For we are called to love our neighbour as ourselves. Not to love people who are like us, but to love our neighbour as ourselves. And that's the big kind of God picture of this whole passage. Our identity is that we're all equal before God and we're called to love everyone equally before God and not to oppress, not to stop hearing the voice of the dispossessed, of the poor, of the marginalised. And the sting in the tail is if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Isn't that Serious favoritism is sin. It's not, yeah, it would be good if you didn't treat other people like that. It's actually sin. This is serious before God. How do we move from the territory of not judging by appearances? How do we stop dividing people according to colour and possessions and clothing and age and height and ability and gender and poverty or wealth? How do we move away from what's normal in our culture and create a different type of culture within our church communities? It's like we, we have to migrate out of our culture. We have to become refugees from our culture, but we're going to still stay here. We're going to say, no, no, those standards of judging people by the external, that's wrong. I've I've got to migrate 
into a new country, God's country. And God's country is not a place of geography, but a place of attitude. It's like we have to journey away from how the culture sees people and journey towards how God sees people. And some of us will be further along that journey than others, and some of us need to start the journey. He finishes off with saying, you know, this is the same as breaking any of the commandments. It's really serious stuff. It's going against God. It seems that there's two categories of people he's talking to. It's the rich and the poor. We'll put ourselves in one of those categories. For those of us who consider ourselves rich, we need to be attentive to how we treat the poor, the marginalised and the powerless. When Charles Wesley in the the, uh, 18th century wrote about this topic, he said, you know, that the one reason why the rich in general have so little sympathy for the poor is because they don't talk to them, they don't visit them. If we are rich, we have to have our ears alert to the voices of not the people who are the wealthy around us, but the people who are marginalised and poor. For those of us who are rich, we need to be attentive to how we vote. We can't just vote from self-interest in the political party we choose. We have to be wise about how we invest money, how we use our resources. For we can oppress the poor by investing in companies which oppress and exploit. But our shares might go up. And we buy products which may collude in oppression. For those of us who are rich, we need to be alert to the myths of wealth. That we are somehow more important than other people. And somehow that we deserve what we got rather than it's just the product of living in an unfair society. For those of us who are rich, we need to repent of our self-focus and indulgence and reach out to love our neighbour. And for those of us who are poor, can we forgive those who have mistreated us because of our poverty, because we have been marginalised? For those of us who are poor, can we look at the unfairness that we have experienced and move towards love of our neighbour? That's a hard task, isn't it? I think forgiveness can never be an act of will. It really is only the grace of God working out a life which can allow us to forgive. Rich and poor alike, we need to love one another or fall into the morass of sin and despair. I've got two more paintings to show you. Thanks, Sarah. This one was kind of a highlight of that reprise of that, that image. Pushing this idea, who are we? I am. 
this very significant statement. I am loved by God. I am a person who is made in the image of God. And so is everybody else. And this last painting, or the last sculpture, thanks Carol. This is a, a life-size sculpture by uh, uh, an artist called George Seagal, who did it in the late 80s. And it's on the front of a book that I love um, by a, a guy called Miroslav Volf. And he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he says the church has to be a place of embrace, not exclusion. And that's what this passage is about, isn't it? Let's exclude the poor and embrace the rich. No, no, no. We have to be people of the embrace of Christ. I wanted to show you this because I wanted to give you the kind of the emotional impact. Because the embrace in this is beautiful and warm and safe. And the person standing who has been excluded is isolated and marginalized and lonely. We have been embraced by God in Christ. And we as a community and as we as individuals willing to embrace our brothers and sisters regardless of their circumstances. I'm going to pray for us. Please pray with me. Lord God, uh, we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus. We know that we blow it all the time. We know that we don't love well. Help us to get beyond our own discrimination, our own putting down of people. By the power of your spirit, help us to love. Help us to love those who are different to us. Help us to love the other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.